You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. This series that we're in really is a series of value. And even if you've never, ever been to church, you're going to find out that this is what Christianity is all about. That Christianity is a relational movement. It's not a religion. It's a relational movement upwards toward God and outwards toward other people and inwards toward your soul. And it's a beautiful thing. God loves you. He created you. You are not a mistake. And again, even if you've never been in church, you're going to realize that God cares about you. He is pursuing you. He wants a relationship with you, not a religion. And God wants you and I then to authentically love other people, including people who are nothing like us. That as we've looked at this series, we're looking at nine different ways that people approach life. And you're going to predominantly be one of these ways based on your personality and your temperament. You're going to be one of the ways. And when you approach life, you're going to think everybody else should approach life just like I do. And if they don't think like I do or approach life like I do, they're not normal. But the truth is there are nine normal ways of approaching life and they're different. And just because someone is different doesn't make them wrong. It just makes them different. And the beautiful thing about this series is we're understanding how in the world has God created me and how can I appreciate and love people who kind of operate nothing like me, that God has called us together to be diverse, to be unique, to be a body together who are intended to love a lost world. And that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And here's what you're going to find out. You're going to find out that the story of you only makes sense within the big story of God. See, a lot of people in this world, you think if they make it, they're going to be significant. If they make it, they're going to be fulfilled. And you'll be like, in this world, you think if people just get famous, once they hit fame, it's like they've made it, they've got it. And then you and I sit there and we watch famous people do crazy stuff. We watch famous people do self-destructive stuff. We watch the people that we think are celebrities or have made it or athletes who've made so much money. And and we watch them do things that self-destruct in their life and they do crazy things. And all of a sudden it might dawn on us that just because you make it in what this world says doesn't mean that your story is intended to be all about you. See, you make it in this life. And you think, I've made it. It's all about me. It's about my fame. It's about my being a celebrity. And what you'll find is that famous people who get there realize life is not all about them and they're not significant and that making it didn't satisfy. And what you and I are going to find, famous or not, is that the story of you only makes sense within the big story of God. That God has been working his story throughout all of creation, but he's done it with you in mind. From the beginning, he said, I have created you and crafted you, and this is the unique contribution you're gonna make in my big story. And until you and I understand how our story fits in God's big story, we don't know what significance is. We don't know what meaning in life is. And so we reach for things that just won't satisfy. And the story of you is only going to make sense within the big story of God. So we've gone through all sorts. We're at number eight, number eight of nine. We are at number eight today, the challenger. And some of you in this room, you probably know if you're a challenger right away. You don't have to ask. People around you are going to be elbowing you. They know that you challenge everything. You're the eight. You know you're an eight if you've come to realize, like you know that you know an eight if you've come to realize that I sometimes need to wear a hard hat indoors because eights are direct. They love a good challenge. In fact, a discussion's not fun unless there's a verbal skirmish. 
It's not fun for them unless there's opposing views that can go back and forth. And, and you're just like, can't we just get along? Can't we just all love Jesus? Why does everything have to be an argument? But an H is going to challenge the status quo. They're going to challenge your opinion. They're going to challenge everything. And they like a good verbal skirmish. You know, they don't have to be number one. But they want to know and strategize how does this discussion, how does this thought, how does this idea pursue what is right? They want to pursue justice. And so they're going to push back on anything that seems a little bit unjust. It might be your opinion. It might be the, the choice you made. It might be the decision that you worked through. But they're going to push back on it. And the beautiful thing is they will quickly figure out your weakness. And some of you will hate that for the rest of your lives because they quickly see where you're weak. But they're going to do that. They're going to see your weakness, but they're going to defend the people that they love. And inside this tough, challenging outer shell on the inside, they're going to have a tender heart that actually is gooey. It's tender. It's soft on the inside. But on the outside, sometimes they're going to be read simply as someone who opposes or who challenges everything. Growing up in church, I would hear about the stories of the Bible, and I'd hear about this guy, Jonathan. Jonathan the prince. This prince who was the son of Saul and would be next in line to be king. But he formed this friendship with David. And when God basically deposed Saul and said, my favor has left you, Saul, and my favor is now going to be anointed onto David, that Jonathan, who would be the prince, who would be the next king, found himself saying, you know what? I actually think God's choice is better too. I like David. I think I'm going to align myself with God's choice for who it needs to be. And we would hear about Saul and, or about Jonathan and I would think growing up, I was like, man, that guy was loyal. What a great friend to have, right? Just comes alongside you. He's like, hey, man, here's a throne. You can just do what you want. I want to lead with you. But, but it just, you know, and I began to think that he was like a six, a loyalist. But then I read the Bible. And this is what a lot of you need to do. You've seen stuff in media. You've seen stuff out there. You have an impression of what the Bible's all about. And then you read the Bible and you find out the book is different than the movie. And I read the Bible and I go, Jonathan, Jonathan's not a six. Jonathan is an eight. He may be the most healthy eight in the Bible that we have. He's a challenger. He challenges everything. He challenges his friends. He challenges the opposition, the enemy. He challenges his family. He challenges everything because he's a healthy eight and he's going to pursue justice. He's a challenger. He'll challenge all these people, but he wants to fight for justice. And so one of the first times that we see Jonathan in the Bible happens in 1 Samuel chapter 14. And here's what's happening. Jonathan and his armor bearer, they've been hiding out from the enemy, but up on top of the cliffs of insanity are the enemy. And so up on there, they're the enemy, and they're like, we should go up and challenge the enemy who's at the top of this high ridge, and we're going to go challenge them, but we want to know that God's in it, because we don't want to run ahead of God. We want to figure out, but you know what? I'm not content to hide out. I'm not content to sit here in a cave. I'm going to go out and show ourselves to this enemy that's up on the cliff, and this is where it picks up in 1 Samuel chapter 14, beginning with verse 8. And Jonathan said, come on then, let's cross over to the other side and let them see us. And if they say, wait there until we come down to you, we'll stay where we are, we'll not go to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. And the men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. 
You want to know where that statement comes from? From right here in the Bible. You know, they're like, I'm going to teach you a lesson. Where did that come from? Now you know, right? We're going to teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armor bearer, climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up using his hands and his feet with his armor bearer right behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. So on the size of probably your backyard or your backyard and your neighbor's backyard, depending on how much land you actually live on or your house or your apartment sits on, in a very small amount of time, two went against 20, and in the power of God, they defeated the enemy. We'll write this down. The challenger reflects God's power. What does the challenger reflect? All of us reflect something about God in our personality and, and the way he's made us, but the challenger reflects God's power. And that's what we see right away with Jonathan. Let me ask, have you ever been to a church service and you went in there and you're like, man, this place is just, it's just beautiful and it's peaceful in here. We were in Montana and we went up to an area called Big Sky, Montana, and we went into this chapel and they were just about to do a wedding rehearsal in there. And we got in there and literally the chapel is built and the shape of the windows are built to highlight the pinpoint mountain that's right behind it. And they have like a fake eagle and a fake dove like flying in the window like it's you know they have like little stuffed animals right and so but you get in there and you're like this is probably the most beautiful place I've ever seen to have a wedding it's just gorgeous but you go in there and it's so peaceful and it's nice and you think this is just a glorious place but you're wondering like like do the people here is there the power of God in this place do people just talk about prayer maybe you haven't been to a beautiful chapel like that but you've been to a church service and you're like do these people have a peaceful church service, but maybe they never do anything in the power of God against the injustice in our world. Do these people believe prayer? Maybe they just talk about it or somebody prays a pre-written prayer and they don't actually pray and you're going like, do they actually believe the power of God? Maybe there's never been an adult decision in the, your memory in that church. Maybe nobody as an adult has ever gotten baptized in that church. And you begin to ask, is the power of God even present? Do they believe the power of God? Do they believe that it's a reality? And you and I want to know that if we're going to be a relational movement toward God and toward our souls and outward toward other people, that we've got to stand for justice. Well, jo Jonathan is standing there and he's going, there's the injustice. The Philistines come in, they oppress us, they steal from us, they are attacking the land of God and we're not going to stand for it. So he begins to challenge what he sees as injustice and notice that he and his armor bearer do not run ahead of God. They don't go two against 300. They go, we're gonna test this out and we're gonna see if God's in this and if God is opening the door, if God is in this, then we're all in. Why? Because it's not the power of us that's gonna fight, it's the power of God. Why? The challenger displays God's power. And listen to me, if you're unhealthy as a challenger, you don't know what that means, but the healthy challenger knows that there is a place where the power of God exceeds the power of my personality. You might want to write that down. The healthy eight knows that there's a place where the power of God exceeds the power of your personality. Because the eights are powerful. They're direct. They're going to be out there. They're going to challenge. They're going to challenge everything. And they come across in the power triad, this power personality. But they know when they become healthy that there is a place where the power of God is so needed. The power of God is gonna exceed the power of their opinion or their challenging and who they are because somewhere along the way, an unhealthy eight learns to be a healthy eight. You know when that happens a lot? 
It happens when you're raising that little eight, and maybe they're eight years old, and they mouth off to a group of teenagers, and the teenagers show them that there's consequences for mouthing off to us, and they are taught a lesson. They're taught that, wow, maybe there are consequences to me just saying exactly what I feel, and they're taught a lesson, and they get to learn a very important lesson. They find out there are people who will fight back. There are people who will throw spears. There are Justice might require more than the power of my personality or my opinion. It might require the power of God. And I shouldn't just go out and challenge everything because it might require more than my personality alone. Write this down. Challengers know what is right and wrong and what they need to do. So Jonathan and his armor bearer, right, they set the stage to see if God is inviting them into this fight. Oh, they want to challenge it, but we got to make sure God's in it. Why? Why do they do that? Because they know only fools rush in. They know it's not two against 300, we gotta make sure. So they test the waters, they wait on God, and when God has been clear, they do what is needed. And so in the first attack, again, two guys killed 20 of the opposition, the enemy, in a very small amount of place, fighting in close quarters, and they defeat them. Well, eights know right from wrong, and when they see it, they move toward conflict. And if you know an eight, you just know it's going to happen. Oh, here it comes. They're going to move right toward that conflict. Here they go. You're just waiting for them to do it. When others want to like avoid conflict or run away, like, can't we just love Jesus? Eights are going to move right at it. And you just know that's going to happen. The eight will wade right in because they know what they need to do. And let me tell you, the healthy challenger confronts the wolves and keeps them away from God's church. It's one of the benefits of being an eight. One of the great things we love about our eights is that a lot of our eights, they actually defend God's church because there are wolves who want to come in. There are wolves who want to bring false doctrine. There are, not everybody is safe. There are people out there who want to harm children. There are people out there who want to take advantage of other people. There are people out there who want to take their doctrine and walk into a place and make everybody else think what they think, and it might be false doctrine. There are wolves that want to get into the church, and I want to let you know that one of the things I love and appreciate about our eights, that we've got eights who serve on our security team. We've got a great security team to help keep your kids safe. We watch what's going on. We have people who wander around. We've got a great security team here. We have eights who are people who begin to identify, ooh, that's some false doctrine, and this person's trying to make things all about them, and they will move. They'll move right at it, and they will confront that and say, you know what? If that's the case, maybe this isn't the church for you, and this is a super warm and welcoming place. But eights are going to identify real quick, this person has an agenda on their own, and it's not healthy for the body. And one of the reasons that Sun Grove Church works so well is because we've got eights who actually move toward opposition in a great and protective way. They see when the church can become full of division. They see when the church can become uh, vulnerable. And I'm so grateful. Praise God for you. Thank you, God, for bringing eights who be, are able to walk in and be able to disarm conflict, able to walk in and keep us safe from those who would like to make things all about themselves. Well, when a challenger is healthy and you've got a friend who's an eight, that challenger will actually confront you about your sin. Now, here's what's beautiful about it. They're not out there just to light you up that you did something wrong. The challenger loves you and they see how your sin is hurting you. And so they wanna come along and say, I wanna appeal to this because I love you so much and I see that this is gonna harm you in the long term and even in the short term. And so they're gonna be direct, they're gonna be honest with you, they're gonna confront you, not to just confront or judge. On the inside, they love you so much. They want to help you see sin's deceitfulness. 
so that you can live self-aware, so that you can live authentically, so that your soul is not hindered from moving toward God and toward yourself, and then you can rightly love others because you're beginning to love and accept yourself. And that's a beautiful thing, and that's what you want the eights in your life to do. Write this down. The challenger wants to see the world be more just. More just. They're all about justice. Here's the beauty of the challenger. When a challenger is healthy, they're able to bring justice and speak up for people who do not have a voice. So in India, we go into these places where we are reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, when you go to India, you're telling people about Jesus Christ, that he's God. And they think to themselves, that's no big deal. I already have 3,000 other gods, and I'll just add one to the list. It's not a big deal to them, right? And they begin to think, well, they're just doing, you know, what all these other people do, and we'll just believe it. But then God does something amazing and unique. God I, separates himself from the rest of the pack, because that's what Jesus does, by the way. He separates himself from the rest of the pack. Because what happens is the people begin to see Christians fight for them when they don't have a voice. And so you go there and we find that not only are we bringing the good news of Jesus and planting churches, but we're finding out that there are certain villages that are full of kids, male and female, who are sex trafficked. They don't know their parent other than their mom. And they've grown up in this village, and when their mom hits 20, the rest of the culture believes that because of the fear of AIDS that they're unclean, and so now the 20-year-old stops working and the child starts working in that industry to support the family. And we walk in, and these are the lowest caste of people. Nobody gives them a voice. Nobody gives them a choice. They force them into slavery. They force them into labor in all these ways because they are the lowest caste. And so what you see is they think if we help them, we're going to undo reincarnation. Like they're this way because of a previous life is what they think. And so you see racial and religious oppression of people. We go into these other areas, they're not sex trafficked, but whole families are enslaved in brick labor areas. And you watch these whole families, little kids with all these bricks on their head, and they're filthy with just the chalk of brick, and they're working all day, every day. They don't get a day off. Their family hut is right next to the brick kiln. They live there, they stay there, they never leave there, they can't go tell the authorities, and they're enslaved. And we walk in and we bring the good news of Jesus, but then we bring in justice. And we bring in the opportunity to fight for those who have no voice for themselves. And so we'll build textile factories for people so those adults of sex trafficked kids can survive without their kids having to be sex trafficked. And we'll build safe houses where those kids can come in and they can get an education, which is empowerment to people who otherwise are not educated. And it's a beautiful thing. And so we come alongside and Jesus begins to separate himself because they say this, the love of God in somebody else is extending authentic love to me and they're fighting for me when I don't have a voice. So let me tell you, when you give at Sun Grove Church, what we do here makes a difference to people like that out there. And we are going to challenge those injustices, but we're going to do it through the love of Christ and encourage people to pursue God relationally, to pursue others relationally, and to be able to have a relational movement toward themselves and their soul that they might find that God cares about them. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Why? We're going to move toward what is just. Well, when healthy, challengers communicate directly. They communicate directly. Praise God for eight. Like, they're direct. 
they can bring a voice to what other people may only think. Like you might be thinking it, but guess what? Eights are going to say it. They're going to be, they're going to be direct. They're going to say it. You'd be like, yeah, put the brakes on. No, 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 no. Even though you're thinking the same thing and they're just going to come out and say it. They don't mince words. They bring a voice to what others may only think. They pursue clarity and they're direct. And so it's interesting. We look at the life of Jonathan and we see him being direct. And so look with me, if you will, just a couple chapters later, he's now met David and he likes who David is and he realizes God has taken his authority away from my dad and he's eventually going to give it to David. And we find this happening in 1 Samuel 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill who? David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him. My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I'll speak to him about you. I'll tell him what I find out. So Jonathan spoke well of David to his father and said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant, David. He has not wronged you. And what he has done has actually benefited you greatly. He's, he's challenging his own dad. He's direct. He's saying, listen, David is benefiting you. David is helpful to you. He's not wronged you. What is he doing? He's challenging his own dad about the injustice that he sees. He says, it's not right. What my dad is doing as king is not right. See, he's not being unloving to his dad. The prince is moving right toward challenging the unkingly and insecure behavior of the king. It doesn't bother the challenger that this is the king he's talking to. He's going to move right toward it and say, if you're in authority over me, if you're in leadership over me, when I see unkingly behavior, I'm going to address it. He moves right toward that with his own family. He's challenging his own family. And parents, listen to me. If you're raising an eight, the day is coming when that little eight will no longer be a compliant little child and they will find their voice. And you will not like it. You will say, what happened to that loving little child I had? And all of a sudden, they're calling me out on my inconsistencies. And you know what? They're probably right. And when they first start to speak that way, it will come across as criticism. It will come across as high sarcasm because they haven't learned the nuances of how to be direct without offending everybody, right? So they're just going to come out and it, you're going to see that it, behind that mouth is a personality that God has made to be direct. And you need that voice in your life, and so do I. You need it, even if it's hard for you to take, even if it counters your personality. And I'm so grateful because God has not just made us a church of rows like today, but he's made us a church of circles. That we're to circle up, that we need a brotherhood or a sisterhood or, or couples who get together, and we need to be able to get together and have other people like eight speak into our lives. They're going to step up for us when they see something unjust. They're going to challenge us for our benefit, and they're going to be direct. And I love that about circles. And if you're not in a circle, you can absolutely sign up for one here today, just right in the back. We've got a table there, and we'd love for you to join a circle for this summer. It would be a great time for you to grow in amazing ways. I've got a quote from Ryan, and Ryan says this, Being in a men's circle has been a real blessing. Being able to share what's going on in our lives the successes and have others walk alongside us during the difficult times has been so amazing. I know that I can call, text, or email any one of the eight men and have someone to talk to, to pray with, 
and support me in any way that's needed. These men care. They are genuine. I find myself looking forward to that circle group just to meet and find out what happened in the previous week. I consider myself blessed to be part of a group that shows authentic and real brotherhood. And these guys meet here on Wednesday nights. Jennifer said this in her, about her circle group. She said, being in a women's circle has been life-changing for me. As I've gotten to know these women, I've grown to trust them. I now feel safe enough to open up and say out loud the things that God is teaching me, things I'm concerned about or working through them instead of just having all those thoughts alone in my own head. It has been a place for me to laugh and be myself without judgment. My circle group has honestly been a game changer for me when it comes to spiritual growth. Some of you are wondering, why don't I spiritually grow? Why do, why? And you're moving. You're saying, God, I'm moving authentically in my heart toward you. And I'm moving authentically in my heart toward myself. But unless you move relationally in your heart toward other people, you're going to be stymied in your spiritual growth. We need each other. We need each other to understand how to love one another well. We need eights in our lives, healthy eights. Well, not only do healthy eights communicate directly, but healthy eights lead and influence others and get things done. They're active. They're doers. They'll influence the people around them. Right, the armor bearer followed Jonathan, not simply you could tell the heart of the armor bearer. He followed Jonathan because Jonathan trusted him. Jonathan confided in him, said, here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. If God's in it, let's go. I guarantee you, the armor bearers, there have been plenty of armor bearers throughout history who had to bear the armor and were like, I don't want to follow this guy anywhere. I'm not following that guy anywhere. But he's like, I will climb up this guy. He's like, I will climb up hand and foot up the cliff after Jonathan because I trust that he's got good in store for me as we fight for justice, right? It's a beautiful picture. They lead others and influence to get things done. We've seen many of these throughout history and we celebrate the lives of people who step up, who challenge the wrongs and injustices in our society and we celebrate them now, oftentimes more after their lives than during their lives. We see this with Martin Luther King Jr. when he mobilized people to stand up for blacks against the structural racism that exists in America. We see Winston Churchill who mobilized Britain to stand up against the oppression of Hitler when other nations were trying to negotiate with Hitler and it was leading to the deaths of millions of people and they were under the threat of an oppressor. You see Winston Churchill step up and involve and mobilize his community, farmers and workers and subway people, all the fight against Germany. And his doing so not only did that, but it finally invited America into the battle that they had been resisting so long to stand and fight against the oppression and evil at that time. Why? Why do they join the fight? Why do people go alongside them? Why do they do that? Because eights, write this down, are protective of people they see as vulnerable. The challenger is always going to step up in the case for those who are vulnerable. Jonathan talks with his father, and he knows two things. One, David has been anointed as the next king by God. And he knows Saul is threatened by God's choice of David because it's his rejection. God rejected Saul and has now chosen David, but Saul is still king. Saul will be king for years. But he is bitter about being rejected, and Saul right now, at this point in history, Saul is the powerful one, and David is the one who doesn't have a voice. 
David is the one who's vulnerable. And so what does Jonathan do as an eight? He's going to challenge his father. He's going to step up for David. And in 1 Samuel 18, verse 3, it says this, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as what? As himself. See, and people try to twist what this relationship is. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about a healthy eight. A guy who can actually love other people because he understands how God loves him and he loves himself. That's what it's talking about. And so it says he loved David as himself. And Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing, gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. What did he do? He took all the things, the prince to the throne, took all the symbols of what it means to be a prince, and he gave them away to David. He's saying, I am publicly and physically acknowledging that you are the king-elect. You're the next king, not me. And he's saying, listen, I'm making a covenant with you because I love you in that way. And so Jonathan, this prince, willingly gives him all the symbols of the heir to the throne. See, the powerful challenger doesn't have to be number one. People always try to push the challenger to be number one. You should be the, you should be the first place. You should be the boss. Why? Because they have a powerful personality and a powerful voice. But the healthy challenger rarely wants to be number one but they want to work with someone who is strong and to be respected. And we begin to do, here's what Jonathan knew. Jonathan's like, I don't have to be number one, but I wanna make sure that whoever I'm following is the one doing the will of God. I wanna make sure that I am doing the will of God as I follow those that God has anointed to be a leader. And that's what he does with it. Why? Because he saw what happened when his father threw the kingdom through his disobedience and the anointing of God left his father. So he wants to make sure, I, I, I'll, I'll put my own agenda aside if I know that we're following the will of God. It's a beautiful thing, write this down. The challenger is always in pursuit of tenderness and mercy. Challengers, you're direct. Challengers, you challenge everything. It doesn't matter if they have a voice or not. And that's why if you're raising a challenger, they're gonna have a tough time just petting the dog. They don't want to pet the dog. The dog might be a little independent. They want to wrestle the dog. They want to pull its ears. They want to put their arm inside its mouth. They want to, and so the, if you're raising a little eight, you're going to have to all the time be like, tender, tender with the dog. Dogs are fragile. You got to help. Like, don't, don't do that. Don't pull its tail. And let me tell you, eights, you can't handle cats. Because <laughs> cats are independent. Cats don't care. And you, by the way, you can't wrestle the cat. And so if you have... And eight in your family, you're going to have to always time to listen. You are going to have to pursue tenderness. You're going to have to pursue mercy. It's going to be your lifelong struggle. You're always going to be in pursuit of tenderness and mercy. And listen to me, eights. When you don't fight the battles that God has designed you to fight that are on his heart and for his justice, you end up fighting causes that actually misrepresent God's heart for justice and his opinion. Why? Because eight's got to have an opinion. They got to fight. They got to do. They got to move. They got to act. And so what happens is this. If you are not fighting for the things that God has designed you to fight for, you will look and reach and find an opinion and find a cause and you will see every vulnerability and you'll begin fighting for the vulnerability that God is actually opposed to. It's not in his heart. It's not his call for you to fight that battle. But when you get off mission, you will reach for the kind of missions that don't make sense to the heart of God. So eights, you absolutely have to make sure that your cause and your opinions, your powerful opinions, are filtered through the word and the heart and the will of God. That his authority 
is number one. And guess what? Jonathan looked and said, I'm not giving up the throne. I'm not doing it unless I'm convinced, God, that it's you. And what was he convinced of? That God had left Saul and had now put his anointing on David. He was convinced of it. And he got behind it 100%. It's a beautiful thing. God's got to be your ultimate authority. So that's the healthy challenger. And Jonathan is a beautiful example of the healthy challenger. But what about when you and I are unhealthy? What about when we're not doing well, when we're not doing good? An unhealthy challenger, we need to identify what that looks like. Unhealthy challengers use power to dominate others and to get things done their way. Right? You've got to be careful, eights. You've got to be careful, challengers, not to use power for your own personal gain. Most church division is led by somebody who is convinced that their way is right, is the right way, and then they try to dominate other people to get things done their way. Instead, God's going to call you, if you're unhealthy, to pursue tenderness and mercy and get behind what God is doing. He's going to call you to that. He's going to move you toward that. But if you're unhealthy, you're going to demand that everybody has got to do it your way. If it's in the workplace, you're going to say, I know the right way, and everybody else just needs to get on board with it. And it'd be a lot easier if everybody just does what I said. I don't understand why it's taking so long. And you're going to just be very, very direct about that. Jonathan could have challenged God's choice of David as king. But what did he do? He said this, I may not understand it. But I see that it's God's will. I'm going to get 100% behind it. He supported him. Second, the challenger avoids being vulnerable. You know what that's called? That's called deflection. I can see what's wrong with everybody else, but I am not necessarily open to being challenged myself. I don't want to be vulnerable because I might understand and see that there's some things wrong with me too. So a challenger can hide behind all they've got going on, behind all the mountains that they're going to conquer. They can see what's wrong in others, but when unhealthy, they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to see what's going on and wrong with themselves. Write this down. When unhealthy challengers can become forceful, insensitive, or combative, right? The unhealthy challenger, if it's your boss, they're gonna yell and scream and fuss that things didn't get done, that the deadline didn't get met. And obviously, things need to get done. Things need to get met. But the way that they respond to that, the way that they try to manipulate that is gonna be very different than a challenger who's a healthy eight. They're gonna do it. They don't care about anything. They just care about the task getting done. And write this down. They're relationally clueless. Sorry, eights, but I'm pretty high on the eight scale. I'm a three. I got a lot of eight, and we looked at seven. I've got seven in me that we looked at last week. There's an enthusiast. There's a persuasive side of me. But here's the thing. Eights, if you're an unhealthy eight, you don't pick up on the normal cues relationally that people give off when you come with all your forceful personality and describe what you're going to describe or say your opinion. You, you don't see it. You're, if you're unhealthy, you're blinded to it. You don't see those things. They don't see, you don't see how your forceful personality is affecting everybody else's personality. You don't pick up on their clues. And you need to begin to look at what does it mean to extend mercy. And sometimes, eights, you need to say this. You've been direct. You've been powerful. But you need to say, now, what did you hear me say? Because sometimes what you think you said is not what the other person heard. And sometimes what the other person heard is not exactly what you said, or they misunderstood the heart behind it. But eights, it's good for you and I to slow down and say, okay, now tell me, what did you, what did you hear me say? Because you think you've said it and been extremely clear, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't. The unhealthy eight doesn't see the value, opinions, and experiences of others. 
They only see one way of getting things done and be really easy if everybody just gets on board with what they said and they don't understand why everybody's stalling and not doing what they said because obviously it's the right way. They hate collaborative meetings. They don't want a long stretched out conversation. If you've been in a fight with an with a eight, they don't need a four hour long reconciliation. Let's talk through every aspect of the disagreement we just had. You just said this and it really hurt me in so many ways. They're like, can we just move forward? They just want, I've been direct, please be direct with me. But if they're unhealthy, they're going to stay there and they just don't care. They're not going to see your opinion. They're not going to see the other side. They're not going to see that your experience weighs into the equation. Well, what's the challenger's core sin? Challenger's core sin is lust. An unhealthy eight in the Bible would be Samson. Samson who said, I'm just going to lust. And, and, and let me just say this. Lust can not only be lust for sex, it can be lust for power. And most often with eights, it's lust for power. And so here's Samson, yes, he, he was lusting after this woman, Delilah, in a foreign country and told his parents, God has told us just to marry within our country, but I'm going to tell you, go get her and bring her to me. And you've heard of Samson and Delilah, and by the way, she was one of several women in his life, all of whom contributed to his downfall. And you would see that, but ultimately, it's a lust for power. It's his own strength. It's his own vaulting ambition. And that's what oftentimes the lust is for an eight. It's a lust for power. It's a lust for things to get done your way. It's a lust to dominate other people. Number six, the challenger's core need is being in control. Being in control. So the eight is pretty high on my score for the Enneagram. It's pretty high, which means... Um, I don't want to be told how to drive. Like, not only do I not want to be told not how to drive, but where to drive and which way to go, because I drive myself home every single day, and I get there, and I don't need you to tell me how to drive home, because I, we're going to get there. Like, I just don't need that. I, I start thinking, like, I, that's what I want to do. Why? Because eights want to control their environment. They want to control. They not only want, like, the achiever in me wants to, hey, let's get it. Let's get to the goal. Let's get to the destination. But they also want to control their environment a little bit. And just need to understand that about an eight, that that's in their, they desire control. That's their core need. They want to know that there's some security and how things are done. And so we see this with Jonathan as he confronts his father. In 1 Samuel 20, uh, Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time, the day after tomorrow. If he's favorably disposed toward you, will I not send my word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I don't let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with me as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off from your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with David, with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved what? Himself. What is he doing? He's controlling the environment. He's saying, I don't got to be number one, but I need to know that you don't act treacherously like all other kingdoms in the world. See, in the other kingdoms, when someone deposes another leader, they kill off all the family and all the rest so that there won't be treason in the future, there won't be an uprising in the future, right? So he's saying, listen, David, we're making an oath together. I will follow you. You are number one, but show kindness to me. Don't kill me. Show kindness to all my family throughout your leadership. And he makes a covenant 
with David on that front. And this is how we know that Jonathan was a healthy eight, right? He wanted to care for those that could be vulnerable, his own family and that leadership shift. But his motivation was godly and he could relinquish his right to the throne and trust David because he loved David, wait for it, as himself. He was healthy, but he was challenging and he wanted to be in control in that area. Number seven, the challenger's core fear is being exposed. See, a challenger, if you're challenged by what you think and maybe you're wrong, this is what the challenger, this is how they respond. <clears throat> we do not challenge the challenger. I challenge everybody else, but don't you dare challenge me. That's kind of how the challenger responds, right? Why? Because the challenger fears being wrong. They fear being exposed. They fear that they don't know the right answer or know it all or have it all together. That's what they do. And so we see this with Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, verse 2. He says, never, Jonathan replied, you're not going to die. Remember, that's what everyone says it was six. You're not going to die. You'll be fine. Not always, right? He says, you're not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he'll be grieved. Yet surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only one step between me and death. He's basically saying, Jonathan, you don't know what you don't know. And honestly, right now, Jonathan, you're a little naive. You have a very strong opinion, but you're naive on this one. You don't know what you don't know. And so what happens? Jonathan's like, wow, maybe, maybe I don't know what I don't know. An unhealthy eight would be like, no, I know, I'm all good. And un a healthy eight says, ooh, Maybe I don't know what I don't know. And you'll watch a healthy eight. They will move right toward the source because they don't want to be on the wrong side of justice. So what does he do? 1 Samuel 20, verse 30, in the same chapter, we find he goes and confronts his father and his father gets very angry. It says this, Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I... Don't I know that you have sided with this son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan challenged, right, his father. But Saul hurled his spirit at him to kill him. Then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. And Jonathan got up from the table and fierce anger on that second day of the feast he didn't eat because he was grieved at his father's shameful treatment of David. See, sometimes it takes, all of a sudden it dawns on him, okay, I guess you're serious. Because dad threw the spear at him to kill him and he dodged it. Like all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I didn't know what I didn't know, but now I know. And now I know which way to move toward justice. And let me tell you something, when you pursue the heart of God, there are going to be people in your life when you start moving after the will of God, they will throw spears at you. And it might be your own family. You might say, God is calling me to go to this college or God is calling me to do this as the work. And they will be like, what? You are throwing away everything we've ever provided in your life and they will throw spears at you because you're following the will of God. But eights, challenge it and follow God anyway. Bear under the challenge and follow God Anyway, well, how do you need to be real? How do you need to be real with yourself and with God? Eights, you're going to need to extend mercy and be peace-loving. See, a lot of challengers can rest in their side, which is the challenge, and they can end it with the challenge, but not with peace. 
So you need to pursue peace. James 3.17, the brother of Jesus wrote this. He said, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace will reap a harvest of righteousness. You need to come along and you need to say, listen, I feel like things should be done my way, but for the sake of the Lord and the sake of his kingdom, I'm going to pursue peace. And I'm not going to demand that everything get done my way. That's a healthy eight. They're going to challenge. They're going to voice their opinion. But at the end of the day, they're going to get on board with what God is doing in their lives and in the lives of others. Well, we see this in the life of Jonathan, 1 Samuel 23. David is, fought, is running away from Saul. And Saul and all his army are out pursuing David to kill him. They're going to get him. They want to kill him. That's what they're doing. And Jonathan does something where he challenges his brother, David, challenges his friend. So when David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David, had no problem finding him apparently, at Horish, and helped him find strength in who? In God. He said, don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king of Israel. I'll be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. So he's encouraging, he's showing mercy, he's bringing peace where there is division and strife, and he's going out and he's helping David find strength. And so did he go out and he says to him, listen, it's going to be all good, it's going to be all good, why? Did he go out and say to David, hey David, I'm just going to come out here and give you a pep talk. Is that what he did? No. He helped him find strength in who? In God. Did he help him find strength in the substance? He said, whoa, look what I found growing in the desert, David. Let's just light this up, and it's going to be all good. Well, forget about our problems. Is that what he says? No. That's not what he says. Did he go, and did he, did he go to him at that time, and, and did he help him find strength just in his own power? David, you're a strong guy. You're a great warrior. You're going to be all fine. You're always strong. How could you be weak now? You're always strong. No, that's not what he did. He helped him find strength in God, but how could Jonathan do that? How could Jonathan know how to encourage David to find strength in God? It's because Jonathan, this powerful eight, this challenger, learned in his own life that there's a place where his personality gets off and the power of God gets on board. That his personality and his strength and his abilities end and the power of God must be present. He's learned it in his own life. If we go up there and fight them without the power of God, we're dead. But two can go against 20 if we do so in the strength of God. And now he goes to his, the future king, his friend David, and he encourages David to find strength. What? In our friendship? In our covenant? No. You find strength in God. That's what healthy eights do. Listen, if you have an eight in your life, listen to me real quick. Notice when they're tender, but don't flatter them. Like, notice when they show their heart and appreciate that. Second, speak directly with them. Be direct. Third, stand up for yourself. You're going to have to. They're such a strong personality. They're so direct. You're going to have to stand up for you to them. But also stand up for them when they end up being right. Champion them when they end up being right because they saw something maybe you didn't. And number four, don't assume that they meant to be hurtful. They come across so powerful, so direct, you think that they're going to wound you. And don't assume that in their heart that's what they're doing. It's just how God's wired them. Listen, eights, we love you. We're so grateful for you. We praise God for you. You defend us. You challenge us. But we need you to fight the battles that God has put in front of you. 
and in front of us, but make sure you're not undermining others with your internal need for control. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life, I want to just mention this to you right now, that maybe today is the day where you need a relational movement toward God. You've got opinions, you've, got, you've said things in your past, but you're realizing now today, nothing washes away my sin, but a God who saw that I was the vulnerable one, that I'm condemned to my sin, I can't be made right within myself, and I need his forgiveness. So Jesus took up my cause. He came to earth in the form of a man being God, and he died on a cross, and his blood was poured out so that the penalty for my sin would be on him and his righteousness could be on me. And if today you want to have a relational movement toward God, you want to be forgiven of your sins, you want to be washed and made clean, then you pray a prayer like this, right where you're seated after me, to say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you rose to new life because you're God. And I ask you to wash me as white as snow and then give me a new heart. Make me a new creation on the inside. Because today, Jesus, I'm gonna surrender and I give you me. And right now, if you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand anywhere around the room? That today is the day you made that decision. Right over there on the side. Awesome, greatest decision you could ever make. I love when little hands go up as well. I see your hand right there in the back. Anywhere else around the room, you might be in the loft and my friends will see you up there. But we praise God for you. God, I'm so grateful that you took initiative to solve our sin problem, that what we could not do for ourselves, you took up our cause of justice and you paid our penalty. God, there's no greater thing that we can do than to extend mercy to others because of the way that you've been merciful to us. God, help us be a people who looks like that, who loves others, who takes up the cause of justice because at your heart, we can mod we can model your power to a lost world. In Jesus' name, and together we say, amen. We give it up for what God's doing in and through and among us. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.